Well, good morning. Good to have you out on a, on a frosty, cold February morning. Thank you for coming and being a part of the worship service today. It's good to, to draw together and, and sing praises to our Lord and uh, to worship Him today. You know, our world is filled with all kinds of substitutes and imitations. And as I was thinking about those words, I thought, you know, when do we sometimes look for substitutes and, and, uh, and imitations? And, you know, if, if you are a coffee drinker, uh, there may be some of you that like to add sugar to your coffee, but others are looking for a substitute, right? What would you typically pick? Any, any favorites? <laughs> I don't think we're going to get any consensus in here today. Okay, but you might find something other than the, than the sugar, right? Sometimes people are, are, uh, have a particular soft drink that they want. They might, might go into a restaurant and say, well, you know, I'd really like to have a Pepsi. Do you have Pepsi? And the people say, sorry, we don't have Pepsi, we have Coke. And the Pepsi person would say something like, well, then I'll just have water, right? I'm not, not going to have, you know, those purists, they have to have a certain way. Well, I can remember one time when I was a kid, we were, uh, we were camping. Our family did a lot of camping when I was young. And my dad was, uh, it's funny looking back because he doesn't even drink soda, but he drank Mountain Dew. Uh, it's even hard for me to imagine, but had these old green bottles. And, and uh, so he'd sit out, you know, by the campfire and he'd have a little green bottle of Mountain Dew there. And my brother and I, we, we, we had this idea that it might be funny if we took that bottle and we substituted it with something other than Mountain Dew. And we were, uh, we were camping near a creek. And uh, if my brother were here today, he'd probably say it was my idea. But since he's not here today, I'll say I think it was his idea. But he went down and took an, an empty bottle of uh, empty Mountain Dew bottle and filled it up with creek water and you know, very cleverly switched out the, the bottle until my dad reached down by his chair and, and grabbed it. And of course, you know what happened? He just spit the thing out, you know, wondered what, what this was that was in, in his bottle. And, and uh, he got even a little more clever, my younger brother did. He, he managed to, to get another bottle, fill it with creek water, get a cap on it somehow and get it into the cooler. And so he actually got my dad twice with the same, same trick. But I, I can remember the second time that was kind of the the last time that that trick was pulled. But uh, no, the substitute just wasn't, wasn't working. It wasn't the right imitation. Well, our world is filled with imitations and substitutes, and it gets real dangerous when we reach out and try to find a substitute for God. When we think that there are other things or other people that can, that can replace a living Lord and can be a substitute. Do you look at our culture today and even if we aren't a culture that, that bows to small idols, as some cultures, ancient and, and probably even in our world today, still do, do you think our culture has its own idols? Do we have other substitutes that, that, can, that can at times take the place of what God is to provide? As we look at the book of Exodus today, we're going to be seeing not only a people who have have struggled with idolatry and the substitute of, of God's, little g, for the living God, capital G, but we're also going to see kind of a showdown between God and these other gods, these other deities coming out of Egypt. I invite your attention to Exodus chapter 7. We are uh, in a series where we're going through this book, and we, uh, we've already seen that, that God had a, a special relationship with a, with a group of people known as the Israelites, the people of Israel going back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. We, we followed the, the pattern of how they ended up in Egypt. But in Egypt, they weren't a free people. They were a people in bondage, enslaved, enslaved to Pharaoh and the taskmasters. 
And so they were living a hard existence, even though they were God's people. And he had a, a, a covenant with Abraham. They, over a period of hundreds of years, 400 years, were still in bondage. And we see that Exodus is a story, an account, a, a true account of God taking his people out of bondage, out of oppression, out of slavery, and bringing them to the land that he had promised for them. And so we are tracking along this account, and we see that God raised up a man named Moses who had been raised in a very unique setting and who God spoke to in a very unique way. If you think back to chapter 3, God spoke to him and called Moses and identified himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he said, I have heard the cries of my people. That was one one of the earlier principles that we pulled out of Exodus is that God hears the cries of his people, but that he also spoke. He spoke promises to, to, to Moses that, that I am going to rescue them out of this oppression. And so continuing the account, we see that, that God chose to use Moses to be the deliverer, the leader. And how did, how did Moses respond to this call? Was he pretty excited about it? Not really. He came up with some excuses and some reasons on why maybe someone else would be better at it than him. But finally, he said, I'll do it. And he did. He went back to Egypt after being gone for 40 years. He went to the leaders, the elders of Israel, and presented what he had heard. They were excited. They, they worshiped God again, hearing that they would be rescued. And then Moses approached Pharaoh. And we saw last week that he approached Pharaoh out of obedience. He was heeding God's word. He was following God's call. And what happened? Things got harder. The Pharaoh, the Pharaoh uh, uh, got upset with them, uh, began to, to, to mock Moses and his God, and he decided he would make things even harder on the, on the Israelites. And so the Israelites saw what was happening, and their, their work got harder, and so now they're, they're mad at Moses, and, and Moses isn't sure what to do, right? Here he is in a, in a season of obedience, but life just got harder. Is it supposed to work that way? Well, it was for Moses, and I think for us, we could also relate at times when things get harder, even though we're trying our very best to follow God's plan and His will. But the Lord had a promise. You remember the four promises in chapter 6 and 7? They all began with the words, I will. And so, even in the midst of the hardship that, that Moses was experiencing, there were promises that God was with him that his presence was going to bring him through and give him what he needed. And so now we pick up the, the account and we have Moses going before Pharaoh again. But this time, this time it, gets, it gets pretty dramatic. We have in, in this account something that doesn't really read like the 23rd Psalm, okay? We, we have something that reads more like, like judgment, more like, like God is coming and, and he's bringing an indictment. And what he's doing is he's coming against the gods of Egypt. He is coming to show that the people of, of Egypt and the Pharaoh, they have had a whole host of other deities, gods and goddesses, if you will, lowercase g, that they have substituted for God. And so as God comes and tells Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh refuses to do it over and over again, now God comes to display his power, that he is God alone. He uses the word Yahweh, that he alone is the Lord. And so we're going to read some accounts. And if you've been following along, 
in our uh, reading plan. By the way, we have several copies of this at the Welcome Center. If you want to follow along with the church family as we read through the book of Exodus, you've read these 10 plagues this week, or you will if, uh, if you're catching up. And you'll see that, that the Pharaoh was given opportunity after opportunity to let the people go. But even at times when it sounded like he was going to, in the end, he didn't. And so the plagues continued, and they, they got harder. And so I want us to see this morning... Um, the first plague, and then we'll also look at the last one. There's just, uh, we won't try to look at all 10 of them, but uh, turn with me to Exodus 7, and we're going to begin in verse 14. And of course, the beginning of chapter 7 is, is, uh, is a powerful uh, account in itself, uh, really begins the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the showdown, if you will, between Moses and Aaron with Pharaoh and his sorcerers and uh, his magicians and, and uh, and uh, what is taking place there with God demonstrating his power and, and also, in fairness, the magicians of Egypt also demonstrating some limited power. We'll talk about that here in a little later. But in the end, it was, it was God who was triumphant. And we'll see that, at, in, of course, with, uh, with each of the plagues. So let's begin in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. As he is going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels made of wood and vessels made of stone. Verse 20 speaks here of Moses and Aaron doing as the Lord commanded. What he had uh, uh, prophesied would come true. And then we go to verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned and went into his house and he did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. So that was the first plague. Again, something pretty dramatic. But we're reading an account that speaks of God bringing judgment. Now, I know that you know, we go, we're going through the, the book of Exodus, and, and maybe there would have been, it would have been uh, much more enjoyable for us to think about their rescue next week as they, as they cross the Red Sea and just skip right over this. But some of you would have said, no, wait a minute, we missed, we missed the plagues, and the plagues are, are important. Why are they important? The plagues are important because they give us, the big theme here is that God is the God alone. He is alone, the Lord. There is no other. And so these plagues were a demonstration for the Israelites and also for the Egyptians that there is one true God. And so he came and he brought judgment against the substitutes. What we're going to see here today is that each of these plagues 
ties in to an Egyptian deity. Now, it's, 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 it's difficult because the Egyptians were polytheistic. They had many gods. I think about 80. And so you could, you could line up the plague with, it's some, in some cases, several deities. The goddess, the god of the crops, or the god of the weather, or the, the god of the sun. I mean, each of these, in their minds, were the ones that should be defending them, should be protecting them. But God was showing that He, indeed, alone is God. So that's the overarching theme. God is declaring that He is the only true God. And again, He's doing this uh, not just for the Israelites, but also for the Egyptians. Look at, back at chapter 6, verse 7. Speaking to the people of Israel, the Lord says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. See how important it is. God's name is, 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 is the only name. It's the name above all names. And so if there is anyone who is threatening his name, his status as the creator God, the, 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 the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, he is offended by this other substitute, the Egyptian gods. And so that's what these, these plagues are going to demonstrate his power. But not just for the Israelites. Look at chapter 7, verse 5. He says, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So again, this overarching theme is that he alone is God. Let me ask you, do you think that today God will judge the substitutes or the imitations that seek to take his place? Do you think that God still responds with, with, a, with a holy jealousy that, that his glory would go to another? What do you think? I think so, yeah. Now, we obviously live in a day that's filled with a lot of grace and a lot of mercy. And so we could see that, that he has a very long arm of, 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 of mercy that's being extended so that people like the Pharaoh, like the Egyptians, would have an opportunity to turn to the one true God. But what do we see happen to Pharaoh? It seems as if the, the more he relents and the more he pushes back, what happens to his heart? the harder and harder it gets. You think there's something there for us in that too? That the more times we say no to God, the easier it is to say no? In fact, one of my favorite passages, one of my favorite parables is in Matthew 20. And it speaks of, of laborers working in the vineyard. And it's a parable about the kingdom of God. And there are laborers that come at the 11th hour, right? The very end of the day. And they, they, are, they are paid with those who've been working all day or in, in, in the parable thinking about serving God their entire lives. At the end, who gets paid what? You remember? Yeah, they all get paid the same. And so I, I, I want to, to, to use Pharaoh as an example that the, the more we say no to God, the easier it is to say no because our hearts get hardened. But I don't want us to think that we can ever know that someone's heart is so hard that God couldn't break through it. Because Matthew 20 gives us a picture of someone who, for whatever reason, waited till the very end of their life to turn to him. And so we do see the two principles at play. Yes, God can save. God can break through the hard, calloused heart. But we also see here in Pharaoh a warning to not let our hearts get that way, to, to seek him while we can, to seek him as we hear his voice. And so, uh, so in this, we see, 
we see that Pharaoh indeed continued to push back. God judges Pharaoh. He judges the Egyptians. But most importantly, he is also judging the gods of Egypt. In Exodus 12, he says, On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. And then what does he say there at the end? He speaks the name Yahweh. I am the Lord. And brothers and sisters, there will be a day. There will be a day when the imitations and the substitutes of this world that are bowed down before as a God, there will be a day when those substitutes are no longer there. There will be a day and a day, the day of the Lord, the great day of the Lord in his final judgment, that those imitations and substitutes that have attempted to seek his glory and that people have given their attention and their lives for, there will be a day when they will be seen as they are. Just as these Egyptian gods that day in the days of the plagues were identified for what they were. So thinking of that, look at Numbers 33, 4. Seeing that God uses the plagues to show the Egyptian deities being false, he says, on their gods also the Lord executed judgments. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So again, this is the character. This is the nature of who God is. And so we see that, that it's a reason why the plagues were there. James Pettigrew Boyce, in his commentary, of course, uh, many, a couple hundred years ago at this point, said there were about 80 major deities in Egypt all clustered about three great natural forces of Egyptian life, the Nile River, the land, and the sky. The first two plagues were against the gods of the Nile, the next four against the land gods, the final four plagues against the gods of the sky, culminating in the death of the firstborn. So what we see here, again, is that, that these false gods are being exposed. And uh, you could do a little research if you wanted to, to see who the ancient Egyptian gods were, gods and goddesses. And you can see lists that try to line up the ten plagues with the different ones. I've put one together here that, that uh, gives just a, an example of what that could look like. Uh, there were about three deities that were ascribed to the Nile. One of them, uh, Hapi, god of the Nile. And if you think about the Nile River at that point, you know, that was their life. That's where, that's where they got the water to irrigate irrigate the crops. That's where they got the water to be able to, to sustain life. That's where they fished. That's even what they had for, for transportation, right, was the Nile River. And so, so when, when Hopi, the god of the Nile, wasn't able to protect from the plague that struck it, you know, it was, it was showing that that god uh, was, not, was not there to be able to, uh, to save them. You can see different ones, the gnats, the flies. In fact, the one on the nets is, uh, is interesting. We'll be looking at that one uh, in just a minute. Um, but if you, if, if you go all the way down, you'll see the ninth one is darkness. And that was uh, you know, the, something that, that took place in the ninth plague where all of a sudden it was pitch black. And for the Egyptians, this was a big deal because they, they worshiped the sun. In fact, they, they, the sun god was, was named Re or Amon Re. And it says in the ancient Egyptian literature that every morning the rising of the sun in the east reaffirms the life-giving power of Amon-Re. And in fact, they would worship 
the Pharaoh as an offspring of the sun god. So as we go through these these plagues, recognize that it's a it's a real challenge. It's a it's a it's a showdown between the Lord God and all these other gods each and every time. And so uh, we won't go through all of them. As I said, we'll look at the first and the last one. But I want us to see that there are four similarities that occur in each one of the plagues. The first one is this. There's a, there's, a, there's a need for obedience on behalf of Moses and Aaron. They have to go. They have to say what God told them to say. And they have to do what God told them to do. And in each of the cases, you see that they do that. Second, we see God's superiority. The only true and living God would be able to perform the signs, the wonders, the miracles that he was, that he was de- demonstrating to them through these plagues. Yes, horrific signs. Yes, speaking of God's judgment, but also showing of his great power. Can you imagine if you're an Israelite and you're seeing that God is, is, is making the way for you to be released and he is, he is doing what he is doing with these plagues and you're like in awe of who this God is, right? And it's going to get increasingly more evident as they go through to the final 10th one. But as we noted earlier, there were also some counterfeit signs. Egyptian sorcerers, magicians, what were they doing? In some cases, maybe they were, they were illusionists. But in a very real way, they probably had access to some kind of dark magic. You know, Satan is alive and well. He's been able to do all kinds of things even up to this day. It's limited. It's under, it's under God's uh, control. He can't usurp God with his power. But there were things happening through some of these plagues that were, that were similar to what God was doing. But not all of them. In fact, it's interesting, the one I mentioned earlier, the, uh, the third one about the gnats. It's found in chapter 8, and it says, the, the, uh, uh, verse 18, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, because there were gnats all over the place, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast, verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Did you hear that? Even the ones that had been working against, uh, against Moses and were trying to, to, put, uh, to, to, to put out their, 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 own, um, their own power and their own abilities, they're admitting, can't do this one. This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So the magicians and some of these were absolutely powerless. The fourth emphasis that recurs in each of these is the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Despite seeing the miracles, despite seeing the power of God and before him, he was unmoved. And in fact, he got his, his heart was even harder and colder as things went forward. We move to the 10th plague, and there's a, there's, a, there's a big difference on this one. Actually, several. But one of them is Pharaoh's not given an opportunity. You don't read in the 10th plague about let my people go. It's over. He'd had his chance. He'd had his opportunity, and now the 10th plague was upon him. The 10th plague is also known as the Passover. It is the 10th and, and, and final plague, and it is the most important plague by far. I want us to take a little bit more time on this one, because this one is also known as the Passover. And if you're a, a follower of Christ and a student of the New Testament, you know that the Passover is something that we see even spoken of in the New Testament times. And we see the, the imagery of a lamb 
And we see the the need for the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. Where does all that tie into? Exodus. Exodus chapter 12, as we go back and look at the Passover. And in fact, even as God is talking to Moses about the plague, He is instituting that this will be a day that will live forever. In fact, as we will see here in just a minute, He's not only going to establish like a, a holiday for the people generation after generation to look back upon what God was about to do, but he was even re- reworking their entire calendar based upon the 10th plague, the Passover. This was now going to be the first month. And so everything's changing and God is demonstrating not only his power, he's also demonstrating his grace because against the backdrop of all of the, uh, the plagues and all of the judgment. What do we see in the 10th plague? We see provision and we see salvation and we see mercy at work. And so let's not lose sight of that even as we read. Exodus chapter 12, let's begin in verse 1 and uh, read through, uh, let's go through verse 14. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, in the land of Egypt. This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the, of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it, keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Have you ever had a Passover Seder meal? You ever participated in one of those? This is where this is where it begins. This is where it comes from. Verse nine. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn in this manner. You shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Okay, lengthy passage there, but we had to, had to see the, the full account. It's more obviously that we could, we could read about uh, how, it, how it takes place. But as we see this, Again, there's no word to Pharaoh about letting them go. Now is the time for the final judgment. 
before the people will leave. In fact, Lord willing, we'll pick back up next week and we will see the exodus from the book of Exodus, right? As they finally get to leave after this final plague. Well, I want us to note that as we read through this, and of course, we're looking at it through the cross. We have the advantage of being New Testament believers. So we're seeing, we're seeing Christ in this, aren't we? And we're thinking of, of, of Jesus being referred to by John the Baptist as Behold, the, the Lamb of God, right? Who will take away the sins of the world. We, we think about, about all that, that Christ did, living a perfect, unblemished life, and how we read in verse 5 that the Lamb was to be unblemished. Christ was sinless. We see all these connections that lead us all the way to Calvary where, where Jesus was nailed to the cross, and we're told that it was His blood, His blood, His sacrifice, that was the, the substitute for us, that we might live. So all through the Passover, we're not only seeing God's provision for that point in time, we're also seeing a picture of what would one day be ultimately fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ and in His life. And in fact, if you think about it, when Jesus was, at, was in the upper room having a meal with the disciples, we call it the Last Supper, what kind of meal were they having? They're having a Passover Seder meal. And what we were just reading about is what they were, they were looking back to this passage in the Exodus. And so when, when Jesus was going to the, to the cross, there were all kinds of lambs being bought and sold and brought in to Jerusalem. Why? Because he died at the Passover. Even all those years later, they were still celebrating it. And Jesus would die, as Hebrews said, said once for all, one sacrifice for all. He would ultimately fulfill that sacrifice and be that substitute for you and for me. And so, yes, we read it in Exodus. We see how the Passover plague in, in, the, in, the, in that, that memorial was instituted, but we also see that we are the recipients of Jesus Christ himself being the slain Lamb of God. Here's how we read it, and we'll put this on the screen. The blood on the doors served as a sign that judgment had already fallen at that house. Where was the judgment? It was placed upon another, a lamb. Just as the plagues were assigned to Egypt of God's justice and judgment, now the Passover was a sign of God's mercy to Israel. They would not be judged. If they followed and they obeyed and they participated in what God was telling them to do, the death angel would pass over and they would be spared. So we've looked at a difficult portion of Scripture. I'm sure that as you read it this week, or if you're, if you're reading it this week, you read these plagues and you think, man, this, is just, this isn't the Psalm 23 God that I, that I like to read about. This is, this is extreme. But what we have to remind ourselves of is that it doesn't make God any less of a Psalm 23 God. Because what he's doing is he's demonstrating that he alone is God. And that when he's challenged by the imitations and the substitutes of the, of the Egyptian deities, that he presents himself as the God who saves. The Israelites would see it. The Egyptians would see it. And friends, we here have an opportunity also to see it and to believe. So I want to conclude this morning by, by asking this question. Who is your God? Who is your God? Maybe we don't live in a polytheistic culture. Or maybe we do. 
Maybe those gods just look a little different. And we have given our lives to them. We've put our hopes in them rather than in the God who says, I am the Lord. So today is a day for us to remember, to remember what God has done, what he has shown, and to come near him, not to have that hardened heart, but to come ready to follow and to trust and to receive the salvation, the provision that comes through Christ. This is a theme that we will continue to see in the scriptures. In fact, in just a few weeks, we're going to be looking at the first commandment that God gives to his people. Do you remember what that first commandment is? You shall have no other gods before me. It's all going to flow. And then we continue and and move in past Exodus. And we can go into the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4. And and there there again is a, a reminder of what God did in Egypt. Deuteronomy 4. Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? Listen to this question. By trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror? We read about those, didn't we? All of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. So this theme that we find in Exodus, we find in Deuteronomy. And then we go into Joshua. Joshua says before they go into the land, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. And he gives them a directive. What does he say? Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. And do what? Serve the Lord. What about the New Testament? Similar theme. Jesus, high priestly prayer. John chapter 17, praying for his disciples, praying for those who would follow their their message. And this is what he says in that prayer. And this is eternal life, that they know you. And who is that? The only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Continuing that theme all the way to the book of Revelation. We see that there is salvation found only in God, only in Christ. And so, church family, I just encourage us today to not only affirm the fact that there is only one God, but to also see the provision that was made so that we could know Him, that we could be covered. And rather than being being judged for our sin, which... Do we deserve that? We do. The Bible tells us that we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And yet, the Bible also says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. How is that possible? Because Christ Jesus became the substitute. He laid down his life. He laid down his life. He poured out his blood. That we, maybe not over our doorposts, but over our lives, we would be sealed. And when, when that time comes, rather than being judged with judgment and punishment, instead, we are forgiven. And we are counted, as we saw last week, as part of his family. We are counted and, and, and given his inheritance. So this is, this is the crux of, of believing and trusting 
in Christ. And I invite you today, maybe there's some with us today, and just seeing how this unfolds, it's like, you know, it kind of makes sense to me now in ways that it didn't before. And if that's the case, I urge you, place your faith in Him. Turn to Christ today. Pray and ask Him to, to forgive you of your sins and be the Lord of your life, that you can make that confession that there is only one God, only one Lord, and that He is known through Jesus, His Son, the Lamb of God. I know to, at times we might even wonder, how could God possibly forgive us? If you're reading the book Redemption, that, the optional book by Mike Wilkerson, um, in the third chapter, let me give you this quote, and, and I promise we're almost done, because he addresses the idea of whether or not we can forgive ourselves, that we can accept fully the forgiveness that God has given to us. Here's what Mike writes. He said, we sometimes cannot imagine how God could possibly forgive. Yet it was for that moment that Christ died for you. At your worst, God gave you his best. He goes on to say, the Passover teaches us that no debt of sin is too great to be forgiven because the precious sacrifice of Jesus pays it all. And folks, some of us here today need to be reminded of that, that that work was complete. Yes, we are human. We have memories of our, of our former lives. We have memories of the sins that we've been entangled in. And maybe, just maybe, there are people here today struggling to let go of that. But what is the book of Exodus all about? It's about bringing people out of what? Say it. Bondage, oppression, right? We're brought out of that. We don't have to live in Egypt anymore. We don't have to live under the taskmaster anymore. But yet we know that until we get into heaven, that that taskmaster will continue to whisper in our ears. He will continue to try to discourage us, try to convince us, maybe you haven't been fully forgiven. Have you experienced that? Anybody besides me? A few of us have, yeah. That's what the, the, the adversary is also known as the accuser. Let's listen. And I promise, I'm finishing. Revelation chapter 12. Some of us today need to hear Revelation chapter 12. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. And God's people said, Amen. He's been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by what? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that you have given us this account from Exodus to remind us that you alone are God. And we pray today that you will draw us, draw us closer to yourself. Let us understand in a, in a, in a fresh way today what it means to be covered by your son and his sacrifice, the one and only lamb of God. 
Jesus Christ. Lord, may the accuser be silenced. May his voice have no, no weight, just as, as those magicians and, 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 and hucksters of the Egyptians. As they were silenced, may you be victorious in this place today. God, I pray that if there's any among us who have not yet trusted in Jesus as Savior, that this would be the day of salvation, that this would be the day of redemption. And God, for those who, who know you and walk with you and yet, yet still worry and wonder when they hear those voices, God, may you help them right now to have an assurance that they are covered in you and that covering is sufficient. God, may our hearts be tender towards those who are still enslaved to idols, to those who are still living this life and searching for the truth. God, help us as your bride, as your body to convey the truth of Christ to our community and to this world. Father, continue to work right here, right now among us. Lead us, guide our thoughts, and bless. Bless even our worship through song and through giving. Lord, may you take what is given today and use it for your purpose and glory. We stand here today ready, ready to follow, ready to listen, to be on mission for you. We thank you for your payment. We thank you for your grace. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lamb of God, and all of God's people said, Amen.